Welcome to episode 211 of X-Lapsed, where we are finally, finally, at the Hellfire Gala. And we're doing so exactly 100 episodes away from when we started X of Tens. I don't know how that worked out, but uh, episode 111 was X of Swords uh, creation. So we started that event with episode 111, we started this event with episode 211. It's uh, pretty wild. Anyway, let's get into it here. We got uh, we got quite the issue to discuss, uh, but not a whole lot of discussion. But we'll get to that as we uh, as we work our way through. Now, this is Marauders number twenty one, of course. Had an August twenty twenty one cover date. We got two stories here. The first is called "You Are Cordially Invited to the Hellfire Gala," and it comes with a backup that's called "Out with the Old: Colon A Tale of Hellfire Gala Past." I'm Guessing the tale of Hellfire Gallopest is uh, a retroactive um, post-colon <laughs> title there. I'm guessing it was probably just called Out with the Old. Now, the writers we got here are Jerry Duggan on the uh, on the four story and Chris Claremont on the back story. I'm just going to read the rest of the creators like in order of, uh, of job here. Um, art by Matteo Lali and John Bolton. Colors, Edgar Delgado and Glynis Oliva. Letters, VCs Corey Petit and Tom Orzachowski. I haven't had to say that word in a very long time. Uh, designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, of course. Edits, Be So White, No Senti, and Sabolski. Cover price, $5. And this one went on sale June 2nd of 2021. Now, of course, we'll start with the main story here, the front story. It opens with an invitation to the Hellfire Gala which occurs on the evening of the summer solstice, which uh, was two days ago in the real world, uh, June 21st, which is also my uh, wedding anniversary and my wife's birthday. So uh, I guess there's uh, another reason to celebrate. Now we go off to Mykines Island, which is referred to as a protectorate of Krakoa. There, Emma, Sebastian, and Call Me Kate are waiting for the festivities to kick off. And I suppose I probably ought to say that the ladies look rather ridiculous in these outfits, which may be the point, I don't know. Emma is basically wearing an entire polar bear's worth of white fur and a crystal crown. Now, Kitty's outfit is something I couldn't imagine anyone being able to dress themselves in without the help of at least two or three other people. I guess it's a good thing that Jumbo Carnation has multiple sets of arms, right? Um, Now... A question I got here, just from the start, are we supposed to be viewing the mutants as being kind of elitist and completely aloof throughout this event? I don't know if that's the case, uh, but that is the vibe I'm getting here, and if that is the way it's going, it's uh, it's going to be a little difficult to root for them throughout. Now, Shaw mentions that it's nice to be at another Hellfire Gala, and in a few minutes, Emma is going to welcome everyone to the first ever Hellfire Gala. And then our backup story will take us back to another Hellfire Gala that claims that uh, the Hellfire Gala is an annual event. Editors? Anybody? Anybody there? <clears throat> is this thing on? Anyway, people are beginning to arrive. And we see that Domino and X-Force are heading up security. And the first crew that we see arrive are the Avengers. And we got Captain America, Thor, Captain Marvel, She-Hulk, Blade, and the Robbie Reyes Ghost Rider. That's weird, I didn't know he was an Avenger. Now Tempo meets them in New York City outside of a gateway, and she pins a Krakoan flower to their chests so they can pass through to Mykonos, and uh, maybe they can also uh, have tabs kept on them while they're uh, on mutant land, I suppose. Now upon passing through the gate... Cap says, hello, X-Men, and Shaw mumbles that uh, they're not all X-Men. 
when what he probably should have said is there are no X-Men right now. <clears throat> okay, okay, never mind, forget I said it. Next, we see the Fantastic Four, and uh, Matteo Lolly, whose work I really dig, draws a pretty bad Ben Grimm. Um, not a great one. Uh, with the four are Franklin, Valeria, and Alicia, and uh, Kitty and Frank have a hug. Iron Man arrives next, but refuses to pass through a gateway he just flew to the Pharaohs himself. He doesn't trust the gateways, uh, nor the mutants, I suppose. Next, Doctor Doom saunters through, followed by... Uh, Reuben What's-His-Face from the Covenacaba, the uh, Russian diplomat that we saw way back in Hoxbox, Donald Pierce. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson comes through. Uh, he's on a panel with two people who are drawn very particularly, so I'm sure I'm supposed to recognize them, but... For the life of me, I can't. Then we get that AIM beekeeper who helped Phantom X and the rest during the giant-sized slogs from a while back. He and Gene fist bump, which uh, feels wildly out of character for one of them. Doctor Strange is next, and as he comes through, he, you know, he takes a look at everybody and comments that he's underdressed. And, uh, you know, I, I'd probably counter that with, uh, you're not as stupidly dressed as the mutants, so don't, don't feel so bad about yourself. Now, Professor X, who looks like a slot machine threw up on him, he heads over to greet Reed Richards. He apologizes for how things ended with them last time, and if you recall, during the X-Men Plus Fantastic Four miniseries, Xavier gave Reed quite the mind wipe. Now, Reed gets close, whispers something into Xavier's ear, and walks away, or stomps away, kinda. We don't, we don't get to know what he said. Maybe, maybe we'll get a better look at this in another chapter. Who knows? Now, Kitty and Franklin, they chat a bit about how the latter isn't, and never was, a mutant. Xavier overhears this and uh, welcomes Franklin as one of his very favorite humans, um, which uh, seems condescending, a little patronizing, and maybe digging the knife a little bit. I also suppose that this is a confirmation that it you know, was Xavier who delivered that odd message over in Fantastic Four number 26. One of our theories was that maybe it wasn't Xavier. Uh, the... Casual manner of speaking and the fact that nobody's mentioned it since then it, um, it stood to reason that maybe it wasn't him, but it looks like uh, looks like it was Now Emma takes the stage. She welcomes everyone to their first of hopefully many Hellfire galas and uh, I Hope not. I hope there aren't many or any more of these and also this isn't the first we we've established that Now she brings Rhapsody out on stage to perform now, Rhapsody is a mutant, an old Peter David character from the, his early 90s run on X-Factor. She begins to play a weird Krakoan instrument, and aided by Jean and the Stepford Cuckoos, makes the song like this weird mind-controlled jam session of sorts here. Like, the invitees are all like... Like, they're, they think they're playing violins, kinda, and this music becomes just this all-encompassing sort of vibe, I suppose. I'm not sure the invitees would be all that cool with this, <laughs> but what do I know? Uh, Doctor Doom does not play along. Uh, we might assume that Tony Stark doesn't either, because he did have uh, psychic dampeners uh, with him when he arrived. He mentioned that to uh, Quentin Quire. We also see here that Dolores What's-Her-Face from the X-Desk is in the crowd, and she's sitting next to Reuben What's-His-Face. No relation, I assume. Uh, we shift scenes outside to the roof. Where the Marauders, because of course this is an issue of the Marauders, believe it or not, uh, plus the AIM Beekeeper, they're there rolling dice. They're gambling. Now the Thing wanders up to see what all the hubbub's about, and he's rather annoyed that nobody thought to invite the, quote, ever-loving blue-eyed Thing to the festivities here. And, um, you know, I know if you're writing the Thing, you have to have him referred to himself as the, you know, ever-loving yada yada yada, but damn does it feel forced. This is like pearls scattered across Crime Alley levels of forest here. Um, and also, uh, Lolly draws a really rough thing. Mm. So not, not the greatest scene. Back inside. Banshee and Emma reconnect for a minute. Which, as a Generation X fan, really you know scratches an itch for me. It's worth noting that Emma's changed costume. She's no longer wearing the polar bear. She's now in that uh, weird Steve Martin arrow through the head thing that we see on the cover. And I think she probably also donated like a foot of her hair in between scenes here because she looks completely different. Now, Emma's happy that Sean accepted her invite, and he claims that he got both of her invites. Though we don't 
quite know what this entails. Uh, Emma excuses herself to schmooze before we get any kind of explanation. And uh, Sean is a little bit... Uh, I don't know, he, he seems a little bit ill at ease with uh, this other invitation. And uh, Emma, like, she kind of like stops him. She's like, hey, you know, this isn't the night for bad news, so if you have any bad news, save it. We don't know what this is. Um, was he invited to maybe join the Quiet Council? There are... You know, very many. (laughs) There are several empty seats there now. Maybe she invited him to join the Marauders. We do know from solicits that he is on an upcoming cover, right? Maybe it's somehow Mora-related. Sean and Mora were very, very close. We know Emma knows something about Mora, right? From the hospital scene. Who knows? Who knows? Now, she wanders over to Captain America and Doctor Doom, who are... uh, well, just kind of staring at one another. Um, Emma attempts to intervene in uh, this staring contest, and it's uh, it's all quite boring. Then, this weirdo from the Shi'ar shows up to congratulate the nation of Krakoa for conquering Earth. Now, this gets a belly laugh out of Doom, and the Shi'ar weirdo then tells Emma that they filled her request, and uh, they are here with them on their ship. Emma hasn't the foggiest idea what he's on about and sends her brother Christian to go take care of it. Shinobi Shaw then heads over to Emma to warn that some of the UN ambassadors are negotiating trade deals. Emma's not all that worried about this. She suggests that, uh, you know, the the high tide helps all ships or whatever, right? The, uh, the better everyone's doing, then, you know, stands to reason the better Krakoa will do as well. She walks away, right past Rubin, the Russian, and Chen Zhao of Ominous Verandy. The trio chats about getting together with other ambassadors. And I didn't realize that Coven Akaba were an actual political power? Eh, whatever. Uh, anyway, Sebastian Shaw watches them talk, so maybe this will come back around. From here, we get a weird page with the Stepford Cuckoos making Wilhelmina What's-Her-Face from the Hellfire Tots and Ominous Verandy remember... something. We don't know what just yet. From here, we jump to, I'm assuming, a little bit later in the evening. Emma calls for the inner circle to convene before the fireworks and the final wardrobe change. This is a full-page spread, which uh, facilitates Marvel doing a little bit of star-effing to keep the comics a little bit relevant. I think I recognize Conan O'Brien here. Um, It's either him or the Riddler. (laughs) I'm not sure who I'd prefer. And uh, I mean, if given those choices and Conan the Barbarian, I would take the Barbarian. From here, we get a montage of vignettes. We see uh, Guardian or Vindicator, or whatever the hell we're calling James McDonald Hudson at this point. He's chatting up Northstar and Kyle. He congratulates them on staying together, the implication here being that he and Heather haven't been quite so lucky. Not sure if this is new information or something I should already know. Then we get Captain America chatting up Henry Peter Gyrick a bit. Gyrick sort of kind of compares Krakoa to Latveria, which, uh, eh, famous last words, perhaps really last words for Gyrick. Uh, we don't know where he's headed. Emma chats up Kitty a little bit uh, and suggests that uh, maybe Ms. Frost has uh, a little bit of the hot pants for Captain America. She then reads his mind to find out that uh, she reminds Cap of his dear old mother, which I think is an attempted comedy. I don't know. Emma then holds a toast with the inner circle to brighter days. Hopeful that once the soiree is over, there won't be a need for a marauding Magic Meds black market, and everybody will be cool with Krakoa. Sebastian thinks it might go the other way, and they'll wind up losing global allies due to this shindig, and uh, I gotta agree with all Shaw here. Right now we get our double-page spread of roll call and cred, believe it or not, all the way at the end here. Emma Frost, Call Me Kate, Sebastian Shaw, Doctor Doom, Captain America, The Five-in-One, Banshee, and Franklin Richards. Which is an odd array, is it not? Hmm. Now we resume at the end of the night, and the folks in attendance are shown reacting to what all went down during the party, and some are rather shocked. I'm going to assume we're getting all the deets in Planet Size X-Men, so uh, we don't know what it's going to be. And, uh, I mean, it is... It kind of feels like it's a pretty obvious reveal we're going to get. Um, and while it is pretty obvious, I have managed to remain unspoiled. So uh, fingers crossed that uh, we get a little bit of a surprise when we read that uh, at the beginning of uh, next month. Now we close out with Cyclops and Captain America sharing an awkward goodbye handshake. Cap asks if Scott knew about whatever it was that was revealed. He says he, he didn't know. 
he had a bit of an inkling as to where things were headed, but he didn't know anything for sure, which is kind of the position I'm in. Now, Cap suggests that Scott and the mutants might have solved one problem, but in so doing might have created an even bigger mess. And that is where we leave our front story here. In the uh, interest of completionism here, let's talk about the backup, right? The backup is here for a reason, I would assume, maybe, hopefully. Uh, Let's get into it. This is from a backup uh, that was in uh, one of the early issues of Classic X-Men, which served to fill in some, you know, blank spots in X-History back when... You know, there was only one book, or maybe two or three books, but uh, certainly not the glut that we have now. So there was a lot of room to groove and uh, and add lore. So let's get into it. Now, it's sometime during the week between Christmas and New Year's, and it's the annual Hellfire Gala. We see Sebastian Shaw and that Lordes woman who was shoehorned into the outro of last issue dancing in the foreground. The White King and Queen, which, you know, the Queen is not Emma Frost here, they're seated on ornate chairs watching over the ballroom. Lourdes uh, suggests to Shaw that he's a fool to trust this White King. Now, this White King is Edward Buckman, the president of the Hellfire Club. He's a human, and he ain't all that keen on mutants. Lourdes is also a mutant, which we kind of figured that out last time. Sebastian heads over to pay his respects to the, ro- the White Royalty. Buckman suggests that Shaw might make a fine black king, and Shaw is quite moved by the sentiment. The whites then break away to dance. Lourdes still has a funny feeling about this, and even talks about how their enemies in the X-Men have always defended all mutants, while this goofball that they're attempting to ally with would rather see them all dead. Shaw heads over to Tessa, who we now know as Sage, to observe Buckman throughout the night. She's not all that much help here, she claims not to have enough data on the man. Shaw then heads out to the terrace to psychically chat up Emma Frost. He tells her that Lourdes is troubled by the White King. Emma's not surprised. Shaw then asks about their guest. Now, this guest that Emma has, you know, shacked up wherever the hell she is, is Colonel Michael Rossi, who had been in a comatose state since having his plane shot down during X-Men number 96. Now, this Hellfire story was published in Classic X-Men number 7, March 1987 cover date, which reprinted X-Men number 99. So, not too far off from X-Men number 96. Rossi had met with Stephen Lang about Project Armageddon, which would have been a pretty deep cut back in 1987, much less in 2021. Frost reveals here that Rossi found out about Project Armageddon's true purpose, which is to eradicate mutants. Duh. He also found out that Edward Buckman, this white king, is mixed up in it in this really, really ticks Shaw off. Rightly so, right? Just then, a sentinel busts through the roof of wherever it is that Emma and the comatose Rossi are. Shaw demands that Lourdes use her teleportation ability to zip he, Tessa, and herself to Emma's place. And she's not so sure she's powerful enough to perform such a feat. And so, Shaw wraps his hand around her throat and suggests that she damn sure better be. (laughs) Wow. Anyway, she does the thing, and uh, while it does take it all out of her, she does manage to teleport them to their destination. They're greeted there by Harry Leland, who is quite pleased to see them. The Sentinel then fires a coil at Shaw, which encoils him and snares him. Lourdes rushes to his side and teleports him safely out of the rigging and out of the grasp. But when she pops back to her tangible form, the Sentinel harpoons her right through the back, killing her. Harry Leland then uses his power to control mass in order to make the Sentinel crash to the floor. Why he didn't do that in the first place is a bit beyond me. Shaw then rushes in to the Sentinel and repeatedly punches it in the face until it stops moving. As Lourdes lay dying, she asks Shaw why Buckman hates them. Shaw kisses her and says that they hate what they fear. And right now, he is going to give them something they can truly fear. And so, we head back to the Hellfire Gala. Now, Buckman is there. He's welcoming the elites and the henchmen of the Hellfire Club. He then takes a gun from one of the grunts and proceeds to shoot them all to death. Then, he shoots his white queen. He then seems to break out of whatever trance he was just in, snapping back to normal, and he is just beside himself. He doesn't know what he was doing. He doesn't know how he was doing what he did. And he just, he's asking, you know, how did this happen? Well, he's then approached by Shaw and Frost, because, duh, they mucked with his mind, causing him to kill his allies. 
Shaw then takes his pistol and crushes it in his hand while he raises Buckman up by the throat with his other hand, and there he snaps Bucky's neck. We close out with Shaw vowing that mutants will rule the Hellfire Club and, eventually, the world. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, more Hellfire Gala in the pages of X-Force. But for now, let's, uh, let's talk about this uh, introductory chapter. Now, if I'm being completely honest, I'm not exactly sure how I feel about this one. Like I mentioned at the start of the show, um, there's a big discussion with this issue, but just not a whole lot to discuss about the issue, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happens that we can talk about, and we have during the synopsis, but the way in which it's formatted kind of defies analysis, right? It's, you know, I don't mean this as disparaging, but it's all over the place. And, you know, that's not a an indictment on poor writing, poor plotting, poor pacing. That is just what this issue is supposed to be. You know, this is vignettes to give us, like, this weird, you know, inch-deep, mile-wide look at the night. You know, we're looking at it from, you know, from an airplane right now. We're looking down on it. We're only seeing little bits and pieces here. I'm guessing that the rest of the event will be more hyper-focused on different bits and pieces of of the evening and of the story and of uh, the Mykonos. You know, we're going to be on different parts of the island here seeing what's going on and having this evening fully fleshed out. That wasn't the job of this issue. This issue was just here to introduce everything. And I think as a as an introduction and as a uh, as a preamble to the deeper dives on the gala, it did a fine job. As a story, however, like I said, it's kind of all over the place. We're not supposed to have all the answers just yet. This is like if you were trying to analyze, uh, what was it, X-Men Prime, you know, the first issue back after the Age of Apocalypse, which was mostly vignettes, right? It was like... It was establishing the status quo. It was gonna. It was introducing story threads that were gonna be, you know, looked at more closely and fleshed out more in the various X Men family of books. It's basically what we got here. You know, I feel like this issue might be something we can analyze after the dust settles. Perhaps, like when everything is said and done, we can look back at this and be like, okay, well, we can see where this headed. We can see why th- why this focus was important here because it played out later on. And so I hesitate to really uh, try to analyze this, and so uh, I think we, we won't. <laughs> We're not going to. We'll, we'll look back on this one as we move forward here, and we can see where things went and where things came from. But uh, I don't want to analyze this story, nor the, uh, the backup, because the backup, I think, is here to introduce uh, this generation of readers to Lourdes. I'm guessing that wasn't an accident that she was brought up at the end of the last issue of Marauders. So I'm thinking this is just to introduce us to her, and uh, maybe she will, uh, maybe she'll show up during this uh, this current year gala. When we looked at the solicits for um, next month's books, the books that come out after the Hellfire Gala, the issue of Marauders is kind of a take on Marauders number two's cover, which had Emma and Sebastian like back to back in front of a table that had like chess pieces on it. And this time there was Emma and a dark-haired woman back to back. And I assumed, or maybe didn't assume, but I posited that maybe it was uh, Celine, you know, the former Black Queen. Now I'm wondering if maybe it was Lourdes. <laughs> you know, maybe she is back. Or will be back in some form or fashion. So the backup served a purpose there. It did introduce us to Lourdes. I, I am almost positive that I read that um, that backup before. It's It's been many, many years, and I couldn't tell you a single thing about it until I reread it. But uh, I think it was a, a wise play if we're going to be bringing Lourdes into the current year to, uh, you know, give a little bit of an introduction. It also... Gives the issue a little bit more heft, you know. Uh, sometimes we get issues that are regular-sized for $5, so here at least we got a little bit extra for it. So can't really complain about that. Can't really complain about it just yet. <laughs> we'll see how it goes, and uh, we'll reflect back. But other than that, not a whole lot more to say. Um, the art here was fantastic outside of The Thing. The Thing did not look good. I would love to see uh, John Byrne's reaction to uh, this thing, because... Uh, the way people draw the thing seems to be one of the things that uh, gets under John Byrne's skin quite a bit. So I'd be interested in seeing his thoughts on this take on the thing. But that's where we'll leave the discussion here. Uh, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got uh, we got a sizable mailbag today, so let's get into it. 
We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Children of the Atom number one. He says, this was a fun one. Vida Ayala is an amazing writer, and they clearly love their ex-trivia. This makes me think about all the mutant-ish groups from over the years that these children could actually be. The most obvious option is the Inhumans, but they could be Neo or MGH users, or escaped science experiments, or Skrulls, or time-traveling chimeras, or Eternals. They could have been created by Mad Jim Jaspers, or Mr. Sinister, or that weirdo Jamie Braddock, or Dark Beast. There are so many permutations. I hope they're not robots or clones, but who knows. My money is on the old Mojo Spiral partnership. I'll definitely be there to find out whatever happens. And you're totally right. There are just so many ways this could go. We don't know what or who they are here. Uh, If you've gotten to this episode, you've probably uh, gotten to the third issue of Children of the Atom, where it was revealed that they somehow stowed away or stole a spaceship, right? They were sent into... They sent themselves into space. The... The spaceship kind of fell apart. They had to take escape pods back to Earth here. One of the things that I had um, floated during our discussion of the first issue of Children of the Atom was that perhaps they were able to somehow get a hold of the Initiative-era New Warriors uh, technology. Now, we talked about how the depowered mutants from after M-Day joined this crew of New Warriors, took new code names on, got... uh, those powered suits, right? Those suits that gave them basically superpowers, right? I was wondering if maybe the Children of the Atom had come across some sort of a cache of uh, of tech, uh, you know, because we did see optic blasts, but we did also see that Cyclops last had to, you know, dial the uh, the visor in order to do it. We don't know how, you know, Nighty Nightcrawler or Daycrawler can can teleport, but maybe they found some sort of teleportation tech. I don't know if this will be as easy as just a, as a, what's her face? Oh boy, a gimmick. What's her real name? Car- Carmen. Uh, this might just be as easy as Carmen being very vigilant on Mutant eBay. You know, uh, we did see her bid on Shards of Magneto's helmet. So maybe she is just very, very diligent, uh, has Google alerts for any sort of mutant uh, mutant paraphernalia or, uh, or equipment being sold. I really don't know, but... Seeing as though they were able to stow away on a ship, that tells us that they're getting into places that they really ought not be. And that tells me that maybe they got a, they found a cache of those new warriors' uh, uh, weaponry and, and costumes. And we know that Carmen is a, you know, a cosplay guru, so maybe they found these powered suits and uh, she was able to work her magic to uh, make them more X-Men-themed, right? Whatever the case, I am looking forward to the reveal. I just hope it doesn't take too long to get there because uh, it's been it's been a slow burn, very very slow burn. We're three issues in, and uh, we know very very little. But thank you for checking in on that issue, and I'm happy that you enjoyed it so much. Uh, next up, Evan talking about Sword Number Four. He says, "I thought the idea that Manifold quote talks to the universe was kind of meh." But you gave it more thought than I did, and I like your interpretation better. Also, tying it in with uh, Abigail Brand being somewhat at odds with Krakoa's goals, uh, if mutants always lose throughout Mora's lives, maybe it's not the universe's will that they ever succeed. And if, like you said, Manifold needs to be in sync with the universe to get those favors granted, that could cause a big problem down the line. And boy, now I wish I remembered what I said about that. (laughs) That was a while ago. I don't remember uh, what I uh, what I said about Manifold's powers here. Uh, now, if you haven't listened to the episode there, or if you're not reading Sword, Manifold is a character who is in charge of uh, basically teleportation, right? And you could look at him as a teleporter, uh, just like any number of uh, of X Men characters here, including Ms. Lorda's apparently from uh, the backup of of this issue. A lot of teleporters here, but the thing about Manifold that makes him different is he isn't teleporting. Of course, we've only seen him use his powers to teleport, at least as far as I can remember. But his whole gimmick here is that he basically communes with the universe, with the galaxy, and that's how he facilitates movement from place to place. In this issue, if I'm remembering right, this is a uh, King in Black issue, of course, he requests from the universe a bit of sunlight. You know, the whole thing was like null covering out, you know, blocking out the sun. 
and the symbiotes doing whatever it is that symbiotes do. And so uh, Manifold was able to request from the universe a little bit of sunlight with which he blasted um, Kid Cable, who was nullified. He was in the, in the symbiotic goop, and it burned it away. Now, this makes Manifold both the potentially strongest character and potentially the weakest character because everything he does is kind of limited by what the universe will give him. Right, if he if he asked for this sunlight to to take out Null and the universe didn't respond, well then there's a problem, right? We just have this guy standing there begging the universe to help him, and uh, well, the universe will do what the universe wants to do. And I really do like that angle here because when we met Manifold, and of, of course we knew Manifold from uh, Hickman's New Avengers, I believe, or maybe it was just Avengers. Uh, it was pre Secret Wars 2015. Uh, all I knew about him was that uh, that he teleported. So learning that there's this new wrinkle or a different wrinkle was uh, was a lot of fun. And uh, as much as I you know hate giving Al Ewing credit, <laughs> I uh, I have to because this was a fine issue. But uh, thank you so much for uh, writing in about that issue and uh, also reminding me about uh, some of the things I said about it. Next up, Jesse talking about X Factor number nine. He says, "Good afternoon, Chris. I hope you and your wife are well." We are. It's been quite a while since I'd written into the show, and I find it easier to just drop my opinions on the Facebook page most of the time. Work gets in the way a lot now, and I have to do some episode hopping to get the shows in the order that I, f- that I can find to read the books. In other words, I'm behind on some episodes, but I'm excited to listen to the dedicated and hard work you put into them. Thanks. Well, thank you. Thank you. It really, really means a lot to me. And as of right now, we're like just shy of two months away uh, from this being a daily endeavor. And uh, I'd like to really get to that year. After that, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we're, we'll still do all of the uh, current year books, but uh, I might take a day off every now and again after that, uh, once I have that little milestone <laughs> in there. So uh, it's, uh, eh, you know, some uh, a peek behind the curtain. Jesse continues. I wanted to drop my short review of X-Factor number 9, a.k.a. the last actual issue, since there is no such thing as a gala. The book really did feel like it was being written for the long-form story at the beginning of the issue, and then into a rushed, condensed mess at the end. It felt like two or three issues packed into half a book. And yeah, 100%. 100%. If, uh, for folks who haven't yet uh, listened to the episode on X-Factor number 9 or don't follow X-Factor... Uh, we found out from Leah Williams that she found out that the book was being axed halfway through the second-to-last issue, which sucks so much. Imagine that you're in your you're in your penultimate issue, right? Um, but it's really now your final issue because the last issue that Marvel's going to give you is going to be tied into the Hellfire Gala. So you're told when you have maybe eight, nine, maybe ten pages left in your story that. Hey, you know all those stories you've been building up for the past uh, year? You better get what you want in in the next ten pages because that's it. Really, really sucks. And yeah, once you hit the staples on this book, it is a totally different uh, situation. The pacing is different. Things are very, very hyper-condensed. And I mean, that's not the fault of the creative team. That's basically... Doing one of the things that uh, we always appreciate here on the show, uh, playing the ball where it lies. You know, uh, you're told that this is the realities of the comics industry. Make it work. And Leia did what she could to do so and did a really good job, all things considering, right? Jesse continues. I'm not totally sure if Dazzler and Lila have ever played together before. Have they? I was happily surprised with this, but I'm starting to get sick of seeing Wind Dancer in the books now. The X-Corp that had Wind Dancer just didn't make sense. And you know, I didn't even think about that until reading this. It's like a no-brainer that Lila and Dazzler played together, right? I, I, I was like, I'm almost 100% sure they have, but I couldn't tell you where. Uh, so maybe you're right. Maybe they haven't ever played before. Seems like a missed opportunity. Hopefully it's uh, not something that would get its own series. <laughs> but uh, it's it's fun to see it every uh Every now and again. As for Wind Dancer, you know, I don't know what the original plans were for her. I, I'm guessing that we're just going to get the, like, the inch deep mile wide on her from now on because this story where she, you know, she had her brains blown, she blew her own brains out in Mojo Verse, and now she is the babysitter of the Mojo Verse. 
but she's also considered some sort of, I don't know, video-making master, so she's doing the PR for X-Corp. It's, I don't know, it seems very basic, um, very surface-level characterization for her. Um, Yeah, I really don't have an opinion on it one way or another, but it is what it is, I suppose. Jesse continues. Some might think that the old Irish effect on the scroll was creative, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was a quick end to needing two pages really fast. I didn't like it, and it didn't work for me, and it kind of interrupted the story flow. The whole book was confusing and didn't have good pacing, but thanks to you, things made a little bit more sense. Well, I appreciate that. I, I hope <laughs> I helped out. I, I was just as confused as everyone else. And I agree, the... Uh, it wasn't the maybe it wasn't the best way to convey the information through the scroll text, the scroll pages, but um, it was creative. It fit the tone of the story with the Morrigan, and it served the purpose. You know, like we said here, Williams and uh, and Baldion had eight to ten pages to to wrap this up, and it's like, well, uh, we can take two of those pages and just just do an info dump. You know, it's. I appreciated it more that they did it this way rather than cramming it into two pages of info page, right? Without any sort of illustration, just here it is. This is uh, this is the Morrigan's life. This is what the Morrigan's all about. I can appreciate that there was an effort made because uh, not all these books would do that. You know, I mean, we've got issues of X-Force and Wolverine that uh, basically have Ben Percy writing several pages of script into an info page because, you know, it's like they can't be bothered to draw it. This is the opposite of that. We get all the info page information on very nicely drawn uh, panels. So, yeah, I, I guess I really can't complain about it. It's just a victim of circumstance, I guess. Uh, Jesse continues. I love the Peter David story that explained the link between Longshot and Shatterstar, and it can be read as just a one-shot. I don't believe that Allison knows about her link with Shatterstar, but I would love to see that story play out sometime. And yeah, this was... Uh, Highly predicated on the Peter David story where it was, and, and it's like, without the without the notes in front of me, and I wrote like several pages of notes on this uh, last time out, even even now it doesn't make, <laughs> it's something I can't keep straight. Shatterstar was born of Dazzler and Longshot. They thought that he died, but or they thought that she lost the baby, but she actually delivered the baby. He was taken into the future. Uh, what's his face? The what the hell was his name? I can't remember his name. The the wizard chemist guy from uh, Alchemist from the Longshot miniseries used Shatterstar's DNA to propagate Longshot. So, in a way, Shatterstar is the father of his own father, which was fulfilling a prophecy or a riddle put out by the Morrigan, and kind of facilitated Shatterstar being brought into the story and also. Uh, wrapping up the story as neatly and tidily as possible. Now, in that, as we mentioned, Dazzler was there on Mojoverse doing the concert with Lila. She was part of the rescue effort for Shatterstar. As they come back through on Krakoa, you know, Shatterstar thanks her, um, and she's like, "Yeah, no problem," which you know made me think she probably doesn't know that she's actually his mother. <laughs> so, uh, it would be a very interesting story to see play out here. I would, uh, I would like to see that, and I mean. I don't even... Where is Longshot? Have we seen him since the uh, Longshot Saves the Marvel Universe miniseries from, like, Marvel Now era? I wonder where he's at. I wonder if uh, we'll ever be seeing him. I wonder if he'll show up at the Hellfire Gala. Pro- probably not, but uh, we'll see. Jesse continues. I'm sad to see this book go. Hellions, Way of X, and New Mutants are my favorite books, and losing Cable and X-Factor is such a crime that it should be the fourth law on Krakoa that should not be broken. But, you know, they love to break the Krakoan laws. And yeah, yeah, it's going to be, uh, it's tough seeing this one go. This was, uh, as we've mentioned time and again, one of the very few books in this line that has a reason to exist. Has an interesting premise in that, that is in and of itself, right? Doesn't rely on everything going on in other books, but can tie into things going on in other books if it suits the right purpose. I was looking forward to a lot more out of this. I was looking forward to just a whole bunch of investigations. Uh, you know, taking these characters off of Krakoa. 
You know, we did see them go to London, right? We saw them go to London to uh, to pick up uh, Siren before the Morgan story kicked off. I would have loved to see them, you know, traveling the world and uh, learning a little bit more about some of the some of the subplots that were introduced in this. The iBoy thing, the prodigy perhaps having a double out there, Aurora's mysterious death. There's a lot of meat on this bone that we're just leaving, and it uh, it really kind of sucks. It's it's unfortunate that this. This was a lower-selling book, right? I mean, there are plenty more lower-selling Marvel books that, for whatever reason, they won't cancel. Um, Excalibur is down there, too, and they won't cancel that either. I don't know. But uh, I guess we just hope for better things here. <laughs> um, Leia Williams is doing The Trial of Magneto, and apparently X-Factor will be playing into that. So uh, I hope we get a little bit of a, a little bit of follow-through. On, uh, on some of the stories there And maybe, I mean, who knows Maybe when the trial of uh, Magneto's over We'll get ourselves a brand new X-Factor number one I mean, stranger things have happened, right? You just uh, you just never know uh, Jesse continues with I can't wait to hear you talk about X-Men number 20 This book was really good They need to give Mystique her own title And yeah, if you've listened to uh, last episode I did talk about X-Men number 20 It was really, really good And, uh it was nice to actually have nice things to say about the flagship book and get that that weird old hoxpox feeling in my gut. You know, uh, reading through hoxpox, you had that like that weird sensation. And it's like, okay, things are things are happening here. Things are popping. Things are changing. We're you know we're planting you know literal and figurative seeds where we just can't wait to see how things play out. And it's only been three issues of uh, X-Men Volume 5 that have given me that feeling. Uh, Issues 6 with Mystique, of course. Issue 7 with The Crucible. And here, Issue 20, again, with Mystique. So, great issue, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on that as well. Jesse wraps up with, Well, until we find out there's something between Betsy and Quinan, make my next last. Well, you might not know this, but Betsy Braddock did at one time occupy Quinan's body. Um, that is some very, very obscure X-Men trivia. They never, ever mention it. So I just figure I should share that as often as possible because, you know, not many people know about it. I mean, I don't know why Marvel won't talk more about this. It's like we never see Betsy and Quinan on the same in the same scenes together. It's, it's pretty insane, isn't it? But thanks so much for writing in on our uh, dearly departing X-Factor book. It really, really sucks that we won't have this one to talk about much longer. Now, finally, we have one more message, and it's from our friend Al Sedano, who is writing in about X-Men number three and New Mutants number three, episodes uh, 25 and 26, I believe. And uh, I love getting messages from way back in the day here. It uh, really helps to refresh my memory here. And uh, and if you know folks are bouncing around, this is uh, this might help you out and give you a, an episode you might want to check out, or it might just remind you of some things here. Al says, sorry it's been so long, but I just finally read Dawn of X Volume 3, so it's time to get back into your episodes. First, X-Men 3. I think I like this a bit more than you. I didn't love horticulture, but it was nice to see new villains who weren't just anti-mutant haters. I don't think I want a multi-part crossover featuring them, but I am fine if they pop back up from time to time. Yeah, I think it's safe to say most people. Enjoyed X-Men number three more than me <laughs> Even if you hated it, you probably enjoyed it more than me uh, Did not like horticulture um, I think no, horticulture is very, very one note uh, We've talked about Hickman's humor Being a thing that doesn't actually exist And it just felt very, very forced It felt very, um, what did I, I compared it to like the rapping grandmother On uh, America's Funniest Home Videos It's like, uh, not funny <laughs> Not funny. We we got it all in the first panel, and we didn't need many, many more panels. They will show up uh, time to time. Uh, you'll see them if you decide to read the Empire X Men four parter. They will, you know, be prominent in that. They also come back during the uh, the Curse of the Man thing. Um, not mini series, sort of mini series, sort of collection of one shots, whatever it was that we covered not too long ago. Horticulture does come back there, and. Um, I'm thinking, because I, th- I think Man-Thing is either getting his own series or just maybe his own one-shot again. Horticulture might be might be getting taken from the X-Men, and I'd be okay with that. You know, if, uh, if Man-Thing wants to keep Horticulture, he can. <laughs> he can. I'd be fine with that. 
Uh, now, Al continues, New Mutants number three. Well, this was interesting. So it looks like this title won't just be about the New Mutants team, but maybe about all the different Next Generation teams. Have the young X-Men gotten a spotlight yet? Well, 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 looks like Al got to um, the farm issue of New Mutants that really took us all aback, I feel. Um, we end issue two of New Mutants with, uh, with a, you know, a to-be-continued, of course, in space. Uh, and then we open up the next issue, and it's something totally different. Completely different kids, completely different setting. Uh, they, they head to uh, Beak's parents' house on the farm in Nebraska. It's A drug cartel gets involved. It's totally different from the, uh, the New Mutants in Space storyline. Uh, very jarring to the point where it's like, yeah, it's like we always joke about in Excalibur. I think I missed an issue. It was similar in this uh, in this outing here. It's like you open it up and it's like, what in the hell? I must have picked up the wrong issue, or they must have stuffed this issue with the wrong pages. It's uh, very, very bizarre, very, very jarring, and uh, it was not great <laughs> that farm story. It wasn't awful. Um, I feel like many of us would have received it better had it come like right after. The uh, New Mutants in Space storyline And didn't interrupt it Because, you know, it just felt like It felt like a fill-in And it was very much a fill-in, you know Now as for the young X-Men No, no, I don't think they've gotten a spotlight just yet uh, A few of the members of the new X uh, The young X-Men were part of uh, Magic's Dark Riders, I think Like Wolf Cub was there Shark Girl was there I think they were of that era but um, in New Mutants, no, I don't think we've gotten any young X-Men just yet. And uh, you know what? I'm okay with that, because that was a horrible series. Al continues, You mentioned this episode about having an opinion that puts you on, quote, the wrong side of history or something like that. I forget the exact wording, and I'm sure you do too, but it had to do with not caring for Captain Kate Pride. So here's a brief X-related story about me doing the same thing along with some of my comic reading origin. And yeah, I don't remember what I said for the life of me. I say a lot of things, so <laughs> I don't remember this. But Al tells this story. I started reading new comics with Power Pack number 31. And shortly after, I picked up all three X titles during the fall of the Mutant storyline. Uncanny 227, New Mutant 61, and X-Factor number 26. That was the extent of my comic buying until Inferno, and then I went nuts. I bought, I bought virtually all the crossovers. Exterminators, Daredevil, Avengers, Fantastic Four, etc. However, I didn't continue on with most of them except for the Spider-Man books. We had Amazing by Michelini and McFarlane, Spectacular by Conway and Buscema, and Webb by Conway and Savick. Two of them I continued buying, but the third didn't interest me. Which one was that? Obviously, it was Amazing Spider-Man. You aren't the only one who is sometimes a contrarian. Oh, man, yeah, I think uh, that might put you on the wrong side of history for a lot of Spider fans. Um, <laughs> I, I've uh, I've gone back to those. I was not collecting Spider-Man during the time here, and so I was uh, very, very put off by trying to collect Spider-Man because, I mean, it was the McFarlane stuff, and uh, that stuff was very spendy back in the early, mid, and even late 90s. I, I was able to get all of it for a song, um, probably within the past 15 years or so, when the the back issue market kind of kind of bombed out, and uh, people were just dumping their entire collections on comic shops and selling them by the pound, and then comic shops didn't want to waste the time by tagging them all, so just threw them into quarter bins, fifty cent bins, dollar bins. So I was actually able to get most of the McFarlane run for less than a dollar a piece. So yeah, I, I was definitely on the wrong side of history then too But uh, yeah, Spectacular and Web Well, Spectacular wasn't bad Spectacular felt relevant to the Spider-Man story Of course, it was an amazing Spider-Man Which was the absolute flagship until Adjective List kicked off And I guess you could uh, it could be argued that that would become the flagship Kind of like when Adjective List X-Men kicked off And that was looked at as the main book And Uncanny was kind of the... The 1A of the X-Men line Web of Spider-Man though Oof that's <laughs> That one's hard to get my uh, My mind wrapped around because that was a That was an iffy book That was not a great book um, I've gone through you know Spidey binges uh, In my time and I've tried to do like Full read-throughs Back when I wasn't you know creating content I would try to do read-throughs of various eras Of various books And uh, I did the Spider-Man thing And Boy, 
Web of was just not a fun read. It felt like such a slog. Though Conway's might have been better than was it Terry Cavanaugh who took over toward the end? I think it was Terry Cavanaugh, and those were basically unreadable. They were just really, really inconsequential. They were the very definition of just like inventory stories. It's like we found this Terry Cavanaugh script in a in a drawer somewhere. Can somebody draw it? <laughs> and it's like it doesn't matter. What's going on in the rest of the books? It just felt very, very out of place and, and dull by comparison. Now I'm wondering if you ever went back to get those amazing issues, and if so, how much did you get stuck paying for them? <laughs> so uh, once you get to this episode, uh, let us know. Let us know. And uh, it's awesome to hear from you, and it's awesome that you're uh, going through the older episodes here. I, I invite anyone who's going through any of the older episodes, if it's if it's an episode, if you're just skipping around, if you're time traveling, or if it's an episode you might have listened to and maybe listened to again and had new thoughts, please write in. Write in. Let me know. Uh, I'm always cool to talk about, well, anything in the world, really, but uh, as it pertains to the show, any episode, any episode of the show, no matter how old or new, I love talking about them, I love reflecting on them, and I love knowing that there are people out there uh, all around the uh, the archives here checking out different episodes. It's, uh, it's a really cool feeling. It's a, it's a super cool feeling. So thank you so much for writing in, Al, and thanks to everybody who wrote in to uh, take part in this episode. And uh, if you would like to take part in a future episode, I would invite you to write in as well. You can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfinitearts.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary something, something, something listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And if while you're there, you like what you hear or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, and all that Happy stuff. It would really, really mean a lot to me, and it would really, really help the show. Speaking of which, it helps me and the show that you listen today. You let me be a part of your day today uh, for this extended episode. Uh, we are kicking off a uh, an event, so uh, stands to reason we'll have a little bit of a longer episode, almost an hour. So it means the world to me that you'd uh, hang out with me for this long. I'm not sure I want to be in my company for that long. So thank you all so, so much. And uh, until next time, as always... Talk to you again real soon. See ya.